I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. A very warm welcome on a very warm night to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you all for, for squeezing in. We're delighted um, on behalf of the whole team here to, to welcome you all this evening. And uh, a great big thank you to Olivia Lang um, for bringing this evening together to discuss the work of Derek Jarman, particularly Modern Nature, which is a beautiful new vintage edition with Olivia's introduction. Um, she'll be in conversation with writer Philip Hall and writer and filmmaker Sarah Wood. Um, and just before I hand over, I would like to um, hand the mic to Keith Collins, Derek's partner, who will like to say a few words beforehand. So please, as I hand over to Keith, give everyone a really warm welcome. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. On this. It's a beautiful night. It's too nice to be in here. There's lots of people who need to be thanked. Olivia, for writing her astonishing introduction where she described me as magnificently beautiful, which is a lot to live up to <laughs> 30 years on. I need the brown paper bag. I think Shia LaBeouf did it quite well with the brown paper bag, and I need, need that to follow. Um, there's some other people. Tony Peake is here, who is Derek's great friend, literary agent, and official biographer. And it was Tony who encouraged Derek to write the diaries for something to be published. And then they went through a lot of editing. Kierkegaard said, life can only be appreciated if read backwards, but must be lived forwards. So Derek just wrote everything down, hoping that there'd be a thread in retrospect that could be discerned from it. And I'm sure there are threads in there. Also, I'd like to thank Ali for being here. She's wonderful. If you haven't read her books, they are truly something else. They are astonishing things. And Sarah. And Philip, who I haven't seen for quite a while, who's super lovely and also great. So... <laughs> It's just, it's great people, that's what, who Derek had around him. There's also someone else here who's kind of an unsung hero, it's Carl Lydon. He was, uh, he's a working class lad from a place in Sheffield, and he was Derek's assistant, and I'm sure it caused probably a bit of friction with his, his dad that he was working with this gay with AIDS. And Carl stood by Derek forever, helped him paint the paintings, mopped his fevered brow, looked after him, and he's a wonderful guy, he's sitting right at the back, he's my greatest friend. Um, <laughs> hundred percent heterosexual, but I'm afraid spoken for. Um, what else we've got here are Derek's manuscripts for um, Modern Nature. I brought them up from Dungeness. Everyone's free to have a flick through them at the end. It's, it's the connection between the man and the pen and the word, and then the word turning into the publication. They're quite impressive things. You can see the, Derek's working. He would write in pencil sometimes and then ink over. Sometimes make 
adjustments very rarely. He knew what he was doing when he, um, when he was doing it. He was a very talented man and put me to shame. I thought he was good at everything except music because he would play a, a mandolin really badly and a musical saw. But, um, <laughs> and at the time I liked pop music, but as my taste in music progressed into something more experimental, I realised now he was up there with Bruce Bailey and the guitar and God knows, Holger's UK came around for dinner one day and I, I just think, oh, that's why Holger was around. They were just talking <laughs> about experimental music, shit. And they asked me, like, oh, do you know David Silgan? Um, anyway, I hope you have a lovely evening. Thanks so much for coming. And... Um, I'm humbled. Thank you. We're humbled too. Honestly, I'm pretty bloody humbled. Um, mm. I'm humbled to be involved in any of this. Mm. Like, Derek German is one of the sort of foundational artists of my of my life. My life as an artist, but my life emotionally as well. My life as a person, um, and modern nature. I just think is the most extraordinary book pretty much ever written which I think I must have said at some point in the Guardian and then Vintage got in touch and said would you like to write the introduction which is again the most extraordinary thing that's probably ever happened to me so it feels really special to have been able to put this evening together and to get people that I love to come and come and talk about who Derek was what his what his work meant at the time and what his work means now what how it sort of shaped us as artists um and we're going to chat, but we're also going to read little bits from, from this book that we love. It's, it's sort of... I can't think of a time where I've done this. I mean, I, I chair loads of events and I talk about loads of books and they tend to be books that have just come out. Yeah. And this is something like... You can see it. I actually stole this copy from my sister and I'm not giving it back. She's sitting in the front row. Um, yeah, I stole quite a lot of his books from my sister. Um, but, you know, it's, it's completely dogged it's it's a book that just when I came back to it to, to start writing about it I was really staggered to see how much of my life had been shaped by it you know not not just as a writer but before I was a writer I was a herbalist of all strange careers and that was absolutely because of this spell Derek cast by writing about plants in this sort of mm. mythical folkloric beautiful enchanted way that that just drew me in. It feels like there's just a map here to how to be a human that's, that's sort of extraordinary and maybe we can tease some of the threads out of that. But I'm just, I'm going to read a really small bit to start and then we'll, and then we'll start talking. So this is a diary. This is a diary from 1989 and 1990. Tuesday, 28th of February, 1989. Woke to clear blue skies collected stones on beach, returned and planted the circle of lavender and the yucca at the back to mark the boundary. Joyful morning. A serpent in the form of a dollar. Film has twisted itself like a serpent through my life, a rampant dodder pushing out life-sucking tentacles into every nook and cranny. A few days here, here is Dungeness. A few days here, and I feel it keenly. It has destroyed the golden silence, the idyll I last lived at my warehouse at Bankside nearly 18 years ago. I've spent the afternoons and evenings reading the new biography of Eric Gill, who, although eccentric, even silly, attempted to fuse his art and life, throwing his body into the struggle. Whitman, Carpenter, Gill, and nearer in time, Ian Hamilton Finlay and John Berger, seem all to have set off on that old straight track. 
a road pioneered by Mr. and Mrs. Blake playing Adam and Eve nude in their London garden. Mm. Blake and William Morris. All of them look backwards over their shoulders to a paradise on earth. And all of them are odds with the world around them. I feel this strongly chose a novelty medium film in which to search. The reels turn, every foot appropriated by commerce until I am dizzy. I forget where I started, if, of course, I started at all. The path of film so treacherous, it was easy to get the signposts mixed, led this way and that way until led by the nose. My sense of confusion has come to a head, catalyzed by my public announcement of the HIV infection. Now I no longer know where the focus is, for myself or in the minds of my audience. Reaction to me has changed. There is an element of worship which worries me. Perhaps I courted it. In any case, I had no choice. I've always hated secrets, the canker that destroys. Better out in the daylight and be done with it. But if only it were that easy. My whole being has changed. My wild nights on the vodka are now only an aggravating memory, an itch before turning in. Two years have passed with a few desultory nights out. Even with safer sex, I felt the life of my partner was in my hands. Hardly the cue for a night of abandonment. I've come a long way in accepting the restraint. But I dream of an unlikely old age as a hairy satyr. This lament is not borne out by my state of mind because apart from the nagging past, film, sex and London, I have never been happier than last week. I look up and see the deep azure sea outside my window in the February sun. And today I saw my first bumblebee, planted lavender and clumps of red-hot poker. Which just feels like it captures so many of those sort of different mm. threads that Keith was talking about. And I wanted to start by just saying, asking how you both came to, to Derek, how you both encountered his work. Uh, I first encountered him. I was thinking about this on the way here. I thought it was quite funny because I came to London. Uh, I left school and I thought I wanted to work in London before I went to college or anything. And I thought I wanted to work as near to the centre of London as possible. So I chose a bookshop that was on the corner of Charing Cross Road and Tottenham Court Road. And I thought somehow Oxford Circus was the epicentre. <laughs> this is where it was all going to happen. <laughs> and the funny thing was that to get into the bookshop, you when we went in at nine o'clock in the morning, we had to go in a back door and, and out stumbled lots of men from some leather bar that was underneath the bookshop. <laughs> so we kind of shared the, the back entrance. And it made me really you know, in a naive way, I thought, OK, London in mid-1980s, it wasn't all out there like it is now. You couldn't just walk down the street and kind of see where you were going. You had to kind of be told or know. You know, I had to hang around in Silver Moon Bookshop going, oh, Ruby Brick Jungle does look interesting. You know, it's like, I don't know, hoping that someone would tell me. And I think Derek Jarman is a person. I mean, when you ever encountered him in person, he was this amazing sort of grounded, generous person, and he spoke, which wasn't usual. I think a lot of the way we navigated London, and especially, I think, maybe hangover from criminalisation meant that... Gay culture was still quite subterranean. I mean, I worked in that bookshop and we used to get in these copies of Justine and Juliet by the Marquis de Sade because it was banned in Britain for some reason. We used to smuggle it in from Amsterdam and word would go out, literally. We would say, 
<laughs> to someone in the street. And then people would come in and buy it and, and buy all the copies in an hour. And you think, that's amazing. It was all word of mouth. We forget in this kind of socially networked world that actually it was about mm. being a person, being in the world. And you had to rely on wonderful, generous people, meeting people like mm. Derek Jarman, who would point you in the right direction. And I can't think of how many filmmakers I know who basically their career started from sitting in Maison Berteau and speaking to the nice man next to them who then said, oh, I can give you a Super 8 camera or oh, you should really follow that idea up and just kind of went on into the world to make films. Um, but I first, sorry, I'm long story, but I first uh, saw a Derek Jarman film really consciously uh, at that bookshop because I was at the bookshop. I had my little girl, secret girlfriend, but I was sort of, you know, what else was going to happen? And a young man took a shine to me and he said, oh, I'd love to take you out on a date. So I looked through time out. Mm. <laughs> I got to see. And then Caravaggio had just opened. So I was like, oh, that seems like we could set up the rules of everything by Caravaggio. So I always remember that was my first Derek Jarman. I could see that. And then I can remember being terribly lonely. I went to Cambridge eventually and I was terribly lonely in my first year at Cambridge. And I was missing London. And um, Sid and Nancy was released and the um, Super 8s that Derek Jarman made to go with the Smiths videos were released as a short at the beginning. And I was just sat in the cinema and I was so moved. And that really changed my life because I was like, oh, OK, that's what you can do with cinema. Super 8 such a fantastically intimate form. It means so many things, and Jarman's like the master of it. So I think from then on, I was smitten. And then, um, and then actually meet, uh, seeing Derek Jarman for the first time. Because you used to encounter him quite a lot, didn't you? Well, this maybe was my first encounter, because I got all my little friends from college, and I said, oh, let's go to the premiere of Last of England. And we all went, you know, everyone else was sitting there. And Last of England happened, and, you know, well, I don't know, when it came out, we were all just like... Wow. <laughs> I mean, there was Thatcher Forever, and then there was a film that went, there's Thatcher Forever, and we're all doomed. And we were all completely blown away by it, and the audience, you know, the lights came up, the audience were like... And then Derek and Tilda Swinton, I think, and all the people from the film all kind of bounced onto the stage, like these lovely human beings. And they were like, we're here, and we're making art, and we're this group of people, and we're this gang of people who are working collectively. And suddenly in front of me, it was like, you know, everyone you could have read about in the William Morris, Blake, the Bloomsbury's, all these people who've worked community. There was Derek Jarman, and he was this... Fantastic force. So I think that was my first encounter with Derek Jarman. <laughs> but that was it, really. How to make that 80s a bit more bearable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's been really interesting, like, watching on Twitter people sort of responding to stuff that I've been writing about Derek recently and talking about encounters. Like, somebody, maybe they're here, somebody said, oh, I was a cocktail waitress and this nice man came in. And it turned out that he was Derek Jarman and that he had the premiere of, maybe it was Edward II. And he negotiated with my boss and got me time off and took me with him to the premiere. Like, who takes it? So, yeah, and Deborah Levy was also, the writer Deborah Levy was also saying she used to sell ice creams in a cinema and this nice man used to come and chat to her and say, you know, you like writing, maybe you should be a writer. Somebody who really is just generously opening doors for people. Philip, what about you? Oh, in 1976, when I first came to London, I was at college in Strawberry Hill, um, in the outskirts in Teddington. And the the uh, Horace Walpole's house, you know, famous, I mean, an amazing queer locus, actually, although I didn't really know it at the time. But my friend Peter Ball Hartnett, who was there, um, brought me a script one day. I was, I was making a fanzine, and he said, oh, you might want to write about this script. And he said, if you'd like to come and be in the film, you know, please do. And I read this script and I thought it was the most ludicrous script I've ever <laughs> read in my life. And I said, oh, no, no, really. It's, you know, it's quite interesting, but you know, it sounds completely nuts. It was Jubilee. And um, so I turned down that, that role. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, 
But then having, uh, I, I worked in music, so I, I, I ran my own record label, I worked for Rough Trade from, from 1979 through to about 1984. Um, and then I ran my own record label for which we actually uh, asked Derek to make a, a film, one of our artists, Paul Haig, um, Derek couldn't do it at the time, so Kareth Wynne Evans did it. So hmm. that was um, another I mean, Derek Prussian. Uh, absolutely, um, like John Mabry as well. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know whether that uh, you can call both the proteges, but well, associates, I suppose. Um, so I went to Phoenix House to, to, to Derek's flat, you know, and I I'd seen him around, you know, but he, he wasn't at the flat. But just to go into that flat was an extraordinary uh, immersion into, you know, this walking into this Renaissance council house um, <laughs> off, off, the cha- off the Charing Cross Road. You know, this one room, I mean, it's basically a one-room flat, wasn't it? Um, and it was full of furniture by Andy, the furniture maker, <laughs> uh, not one piece of which would fit in any rational room at all. Um, so it was, like, it was like Alice in Wonderland, like, it's just like all this squeezed into this ridiculous space and everything's so black, you almost sort of like feeling your way through it. Uh, and then because, because I, I, I got to know Neo Tenant very well um, uh, way back in 1980, early 1980s, so, and then, of course, when he worked with, uh, um, with Derek, uh, all these means, but there's many other connections because you could fit in one cinema the people who, who in London who, who were doing this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and you, you knew each other, you just knew each other. And you went to the same clubs and mm. it was so intimate. And that was, I mean, someone like Derek became, you know, the whole sort of the, sort of the cliche of St. Derek. I mean, it was kind of true in a way because he came from the distant past. He came from the 1940s. He was, I was thinking about this earlier this afternoon, that his imagination actually comes from that neo-romantic, apocalyptic vision of absolute mid-century Britain. And that's what he brought to the 1970s and then the 1980s and onwards was, was that vision of absolute resistance absolute resistance, absolute individuality, and absolute art, you know. I mm. mean, and we were saying, we were talking about Thatcher um, downstairs, weren't we? Um, I mean, an extraordinary era when it, we, were le- we were actually legislated against, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Not even pretty much. No, no, no yeah. it was, yeah, it was pretty, It was actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sec- Section 28, obviously. So, but yeah. what makes greater art, yeah. you know? Resisting. <laughs> Resisting, yeah. But also it takes a great person to be able to speak out and I think that talent for being able to speak and to mm. communicate one-to-one suddenly with the HIV diagnosis, I can't imagine mm. what it was like personally, but to mm. take that and go, I'm going to say this out loud mm. and to go forward, I mean, that was extraordinary. Mm. And really the moment when, you know, fast forward a little bit and Jarman's on stage at Sundance and all these American directors are there yes. and they're all looking at him and going, oh, you've done this amazing thing and it just launched queer cinema. I mean, it was just that moment, everybody just went, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to go. I mean, that, all the politics and everything came really through that moment because the film is such a wonderful medium for spreading a message. So if you make very good films and lots of people see them, mm-hmm. goes the politics. And I mean, I'm not going to oversay it, but it was something amazing about translating Derek's talent to America. But, uh, Sarah, will you read your bit? Oh, yeah. OK. I'm going to read childhood bit, I think. <laughs> OK, so we're in Italy and it's 1946. In 1946, we flew to Italy when my father, after some months, became commandant at the airfield in Rome and a witness in in the Venice war trials. Villa Zuasa was requisitioned for us, a large house on Lake Maggiore with extensive gardens on the lakeside. 
beautiful flowers and how to grow them. A few months after my fourth birthday, my parents gave me this large Edwardian garden book full of delightful watercolours, illustrations and, near, um, and neat little line drawings. Tea Roses, Chimney Campanulas and Snapdragons by Hugh Norris and Francis James's Chinese Primulas are my favourites. They held me spellbound on many a rainy day. Where my parents found this book or why they gave it to me, which is carefully inscribed dedication, I cannot imagine. I certainly couldn't read it, and even if I had, I don't know what I would have made of the long list of acacias, acanthums and acalies. Perhaps my father found it in a dusty corner of some bookshop in Milan, or perhaps my mother discovered the book in the house and gave it to me. Beautiful Flowers was to be my only Bible for many years. I pored over its exotic pages, scribbled in coloured crayons across its illustrations, and made my own first drawings and flowers by copying it. Many years later I had one of the watercolours blown up to vast proportions for the backdrop of a short pas de deux set in a Sibelius's nocturne, an enormous arch of blush, blush pink orchids, which reduced the dancers to the size of fairies, conjured so artfully in turn-of-the-century spirit photos. Beautiful Flowers opens with the rose. It is lavish in its praise. There should be nothing stiff, stilted or formal about roses, whether in the growing of them, the utilisation of them or the writing about them. Beauty begets beauty. Who can look on a picture of a beautiful garden without feeling the impulse to grow flowers and what results this can have? A garden where poor wayward humanity is capable of being swayed by emotions which make for peace and beauty. Look to the rose it commands. Look to the rose that blows about us. Laughing, she says, into the world I blow. At once the silken tassel of my purse tear and its treasure on the garden throw. So the Rubiat was the first poem I ever laid eyes on. Dunbar and the Bard himself quickly followed. There was no better path to poetry than this garden book. My father filmed my mother picking the pink cabbage roses on my grandmother's wall as they fell apart in her hands. And my sister and myself in the garden of Zuasa standing in front of a bed of scarlet geraniums. Zonal pelagoniums, as my old book carefully reminds us. Zonal pelagoniums. Geraniums remain for me geraniums. Beautiful des Flowers describes them as once the reigning queen of the flower garden. The cheerful zonal has declined in favour, but not with me. I've carefully nurtured them for years on my balcony in London, where they've bloomed continuously in the most adverse conditions. Nowadays, the plants come in the most ghastly colours, and Paul Crampnet, the true scarlet, the one and only colour of geranium, is a rarity. True scarlet is a problem even in costuming films, and was the subject of many a conversation with Christopher Hobbs, designer on Caravaggio. I cannot find a true scarlet, he lamented, holding up a small square of antique silk. Where can you find that colour today? The garden at Zuyasa ran for a mile along the banks of Lake Maggiore. It spilled over its stone terraces, a cornucopia of cascading blossoms, abandoned avenues of mighty camellias, old roses trailing into the lakes, huge golden pumpkins, stone gods overturned and covered with scurrying green lizards, dark cypresses, and woods full of hazel and sweet chestnut. Far away in a corner of the woods was a gatehouse where an old crone who lived in another time pottered around vast trays, one above the other, and carried bundles of mulberry leaves to feed armies of voracious silkworms. In this Eden, my sister and I walked arm in arm, naked along a jetty, submerged in the waters of the lake. The weather was capricious, the sun quickly disappeared, and thunderstorms descended from the mountains. Once a large glass door blew shut with such violence it shattered into a thousand pieces, sending all of us scurrying from the supper table. But the storm would soon be over, and these days remain in my memory full of sunlight. The dawn would bring Cecilia, the housekeeper, bustling into my bedroom with a long feather duster to shoo out the swallows that flitted through the window to build their nests in the corner of the room. Then she stood me on the bed and watched me dress, 
always retying my shoelaces neatly. After breakfast, Davide, her handsome 18-year-old nephew, would place me on the handlebars of his bike and we'd be off down country lanes or out on the lake in an old rowing boat where I would watch him strip in the heat as he rode around the headland to a secret cove, laughing all the way. He was my first love. That's so sweet. There's so much in that I'm fascinated by. It's, it's this book that's... Um, haunted by paradise, haunted by Eden, and that has so many different types of Eden inside it. Mm. There's the sort of Eden of childhood lost, and there's this sort of pastoral Eden that exists in literature or art, maybe in the imagination more than in any kind of temporal reality. But it's you can feel the spell of it, even from that sort of page falling over you, this kind of world of world of beauty and world of images that's so much then the source of what he puts yeah. in his films mm. but also exists as this mm. this sort of literary thing and it's, mm. it's hard to think of another writer that does that I, who's I, writing in the same time uh, absolutely I mean I, apart from you Philip <laughs> I, I, I'm going to pay Keith Collins a lot of royalties tonight because my past three books have completely ripped off modern nature. Completely. Well, so did to the river. To the river mean, just totally ripped off. I mean, um, so, yeah. But, Keith, but, if you come up with your hat, we'll pay yeah, you that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll lick you in places. Uh, <laughs> Keith just walked out. <laughs> Actually, Sebald comes to mind. Mm. Uh, in a weird sort of way, because yes. I think there's a lot of queerness about Sabled, which is acknowledged. Get out. <laughs> Absolutely, and Denton Welch, I think, yeah. in that really perfervid recollection of placing you in a point, in, in in a physical place, but in an emotional state, which is is very much. It's very uh, actually Denton Welch is more observatory. He's yeah. more he's more removed from the action. Derek is in the action, but of course he's he's not because he's. He's talking retrospectively, and that's mm. the power of that book is the cutting in and out between mm. 1990 and 1942. Yeah. And there is no, they are seamless. Yeah. It, it blurs. And the medieval thread, because yeah. all the way yeah. through, he's, he's reading these um, medieval herbals, and so he just sort of puts in, let's see if I can just find one quickly. Oh, yeah, they create the... The house leak under the sign of Jupiter the Thunderer protects whoever grows it against storms and lightning. Its effect mm. is so powerful mm. that the emperor... I can't pronounce this. Mm. <laughs> ordered it grown mm. on the root of every home. To this day, you will find it grown in the same way, surviving drought and frost, ever and always living. Mm. So this, you, you get this sort of tonal richness because he's sort of feeding in mm. those lines, his own sort mm. of haunted by the past mm. lines. And then, mm. like... Fuck Channel Four. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Really sort of Janet Street Porter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really yeah. funny. It's yeah. I mean, it is like it's really. It's, it's full of it's full of incredibly bitchy rants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sort of fairly fun, but actually sometimes really not very fun at all. <laughs> and but it's also colour as well because I mean you can't help now you can't help thinking about Derek without the garden at Dungeness. Yeah. Which is such an expression of him. Yeah. These spiky plants these beautiful plants, this desolate sort of industrial wasteland, the beach where I swim every day. I mean, I realise re re yeah. one reason why I'm attached to the beach where I swim every day is I'm facing a, a power station and a chemical refinery. 
you know, I was swimming there at half past four this morning, and it's and the reason why I pick up holy stones every day yeah. from the beach. You know, I have them in my pocket now. You know, it's and because Derek invests the landscape with a talismanic power, mm. which is about. It, and it is about a, a queer nature. It's creating a space for yourself, which mm. is... And being able to thrive in hostile environments. A, like those plants. Yeah. Like those plants yeah. pushing up, you know, the... The, 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 the lusciousness next to yeah, the nuclear exactly, power station. Exactly. Um, I thought that this time reading it, I thought it's an amazing uh, reading experience. I don't know, I've read it like maybe loads of times through my life. Mm. And this time I think things, even like that moment about the house leaks, it takes you into your own sense of memory and where yes, you are in the yes. world. So I think maybe that's why I was talking about the 1980s. Yes. It suddenly takes you to all these different places. Absolutely. And it means that everything under your feet has got a history. And if you trace the history, it's so often like it's a queer history or it's an yeah. al- uh, uh, alternative history of any yeah, form. Uh, and it's extraordinary, really, to know that. And mm. I think he, the sort of love of love of life but it's a sort of deliberate act of love it's like I'm yeah. going to feel what this feels like so it's an amazingly sensual read I, I yeah, love it it just, uh, brings you right back to what everything feels it like it put is. your hands in soil <laughs> to all things without being um, overly sort of enthusiastic in some way it's just loving it's an act of love but it has a very strange effect to reading it so I don't know if people in the audience have read it already because it's actually a really moving read and it changes through the time when you read it astonishingly yeah. Yeah, it is. yeah what comes out from it it's so layered Sarah, talk about talk about um, your film that uses bits from the garden. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I don't know if this is. A- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I don't know. I've always loved Derek Jarman. He's very inspiring. And uh, two years ago, I got commissioned to a, put, make a film for boat the, people, boat people for the Whitstable Biennale. And uh, I thought, oh God, how can I make anything in Kent without it being about, in some level, about Derek Jarman? And actually, I read the diaries then for that, and I was. Um, I felt very differently about it. I realised what pressure Jarman was under once he'd, had, he'd been public about his HIV diagnosis and then just feeling the full force of the government coming back and the tabloids coming back mm. and to be so sort of singled out as somebody that people were quite vitriolic towards and that the garden and Dungeness felt like a complete escape. 
And so I started to try and make this film that's about uh, the question now about refugees and about whether or not we're a welcoming nation or a closed nation. And I kind of thought, what would Derek Jarman think living on the edge of Britain as he removed himself to him? What does that edginess mean for uh, us as a, as a nation in our mm. identity? Uh, so then I had the brilliant idea that I'd ask that I could use all the landscape footage or to make use of some of the landscape footage that's in the garden because I loved the Super 8 footage that was taken when they were making the film. And luckily I know James Mackay, who was um, Derek's producer, and after a bit of a negotiation he agreed. And it was all good, except at the last minute I managed to have a few shadowy faces <laughs> in the film. James was like, no, no, it all will be terribly wrong. So I was like cutting, cutting, cutting at the last minute. But it's a, um, it was a beautiful gift, and it was so uh, amazing to go back and work closely with that footage and see how it was woven into the film and to see sort of all the love and all the different perspectives, because you can start to see when you look at a film closely who's done which bit of filming, uh, mm. what sort of, you know, the energy that's gone into different pieces so it was um, extraordinary really to go back to the garden I mean for me the garden was always the film that just uh, blew my mind so mm. it was very nice to go back mm. and to um, work just with those pieces mm. and for anybody who hasn't seen them I think this German Super 8 yeah. whenever you can see them they're so beautiful and such beautiful. they just take you back to mm. how to make how to bring things together how to be with other people and, mm. Mm. and the garden just kind of does that on a big scale so uh, that's how I ended up fiddling around <laughs> and taking bits out of the garden. It was, sorry, I was one other thing. I was going to say, it was funny because I, I cut the garden, but I also used Humphrey Jennings, and it was interesting to me that mm. um, Humphrey Jennings is a mid-century filmmaker, but a bit like Philip was saying, mm. Jarman was somebody of very much of the moment, but also, yeah, this sort of mid-century, post-war, slightly traumatised questioning dialogue going through all his film and uh, it was interesting to put him in conjunction mm. with Humphrey Jennings who actually looked a little more radical really than Jarman who always had a sort of call to the conservative that he wanted to be part of in some way and I think that's um, it was interesting to put the two together so that's my <laughs> adventures with Derek. Do you do you want to read a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll read a little bit. Because um, actually, I think, you know, picking up on that's that... Really is that That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of putting them together, actually. That's really interesting. What, yeah, 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 it's funny, isn't it? Just, I mean, it's interesting. A long time ago, I taught... Um, Ali and I both taught for students in Cambridge, and we were studying Peter Greenaway and Derek Jarman, and we sat out. And actually, watching Derek Jarman, you realise he's kind of... Because he loves... He sort of loves what he hates, so he's drawn mm. to yes. the military and he's drawn to the yeah. government, he's drawn to costumes of the church and things. At the and Jubilee, actually, the punks are really not... Really not good. We kind of like Elizabeth I. So yes. this is yes. so, And then I watched Peter Greenaway and you think, no, he really hates all this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really savage. Yeah. And it was unusual to realise that there's this sort of conservatism, which we yeah. are entitled to yeah. occupy as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like and it shouldn't be one thing or the other. Such a lament going through this all the way of sort of the lost vegetable gardens mm. and the bear pit and bankside that's mm. been destroyed by a block of flats. The, the yeah. thing he really hates about mm. Thatcherism mm. is often the sort of the greed and the uglification mm. of a country that he that he loves. There's a real spell yeah. of England. It's, I put mm. in something in the initial introduction about saying he would have hated Brexit. And Keith said, don't say that. You don't know whether he would have hated it or not. He often surprised you. And it, it, that sort of stayed with me, this mm. idea of, like, would he or wouldn't he? Mm. That he's not... Mm. He, you can't shake him into mm. the sort of ideal politically correct saint that you might want to. He's, he's much more complicated yeah. and crotchety yeah. than that. Yeah. And also there's a sense of conservatism about yeah. him, which is yeah. what is really, I mean, sort of counterintuitive, but there's something anchoring about him. You sort mm. of... Yeah. That, that, that's like, and I was looking again in the book and thinking how his early life, apart from the life in Italy, this was... It was in Dorset, you yeah. know, such an English yeah. county. Yeah, and a that horrible school. And that, yeah, yeah. Camford <laughs> School, which yeah. I have actually lectured at, Camford oh, wow. School. Was quite, but also, he was before Camford, he was in Hordle, 
And Hordle is actually where there's this amazing eruption of utopian spirit in the mid-19th century. A woman called Marianne Gerling claimed to be the female Christ and took oh, she is, yeah. 176 <laughs> of her swirling, dancing oh, dervishes to Hordle. And that's where he made his first garden. I mean, I, I, I'm sure Derek wow. didn't know that, but it's really interesting aspect yes um, I think he would love that because reading this book there's so many very old ladies in it yeah. these old women who all hold this country women. together and yeah. they teach him how to, go, yeah, teach teach him him. to do practical yeah. things I'm still traumatised yeah. by the murder of the slugs yeah. in this yeah. book so you meet some old woman who's murdering the slugs but that's yeah. who holds yeah. this country yeah. together yeah. <laughs> and, and also the, you know the whole thing about you know the, the, the link to Shakespeare, I mean, The Tempest, you know, yeah. it's very hard not to see him as Prospero, you yeah. know. Um, especially and he felt the, that, right? Well, I, think, I think he did, didn't he? And you, you feel that, you know, he's, you know, Shakespeare's Prospero is, is, is the magus at the end of his life, you yeah. know. Um, Breaking his throne. Yes, exactly. Uh, and drowning his books. Yeah. Um, so that leads into what right. I want to read. Um, <laughs> as the Black Twister hurled the little house in Kansas, through the raging clouds to Oz. I bolted through the cinema and out into the street. <laughs> How often in my childhood dreams have I found myself trapped on the emerald floors, pursued by the armies of the wicked witch, transformed to a relentless phalanx of marching nails which pursued me as I slipped on the glistening surface. Childhood memories have a funny habit of repeating themselves. On the now famous October night of the great storm about a year ago, I awoke in the early hours of morning from a fitful sleep. A sharp wind had sprung up. At first, I thought little of it. Dungeness is known to be exposed, and the wind blows here without ceasing. In the dark, I noticed that the glass lampshade in the centre of the room was swaying back and forth, and the room was full of dust forced by the wind from every nook and cranny. I switched on the light and nothing happened. The power lines were down. The first dull waves of panic washed over me. I dressed fumbling in the dark. Feeling cold and nauseous, I groped my way by the spectral beam of the lighthouse towards the kitchen at the back of the house which was taking the full brunt of the storm, increasing its intensity by the minute. I found a candle and lit it. If anything, its guttering flame increased my feelings of insecurity and isolation. Outside, the nuclear power station glowed in the dark. I blew out the candle. A fisherman's hut, disintegrating, seemed in the dark to be the house itself. Every timber was stretching to breaking point. Now and again, a board split from its neighbour, 80 years of tar and paint parting like a rifle shot. The house was breaking up. I sat and waited for the roof to blow away or a window to cave in. The hurricane grew. A deep and continuous roar now underpinned the higher notes of gutter and drainpipe. The shrieks and groans and banshee whistling took on symphonic proportion. My prospect cottage never seemed so dear, beaten like a drum in the rushing wind that assaulted it and flew on howling after other prey. Down the coast, 
Whole roofs of tiles were lifted high in the air to descend in a ceramic hail. A garden wall collapsed in a series of curves like a serpent. An ancient macrocepha shredded like, a, like matchsticks. Houses groaned and slid off their foundations. Leaning out into the grey dawn, I found the house had sustained no damage. Around it, the sea, exploding along the nests, enveloped me in a shower of salt spray, which frosted the windows and burnt the gorse and, blue and broom black. Great dark waves moved in slow motion, drawn in perfect lines across the sea. Their crests whipped into a white pall, which hung mist-like over the desolation. Yet Prospect stood firm on its foundations, unlike the farm in Kansas. Without light or heat for the next week, I stared at the glittering power plant on the horizon and wondered if, like the Emerald City and the great Oz himself, my life in this cottage had been dreamt all those years ago in Rome. The Wizard of Oz reminds me of the frightening power of movies to move. I'm glad it had a it has an, a happy ending. Sorry, sorry. But, but as I was reading that, I was reading that yesterday. When I woke up this morning, half past four, to go for my swim, there was a power cut. Oh. All the lights were coloured. It was really amazing to look out over my suburbia, not over the desolate beach of wow. Dungeness, and everything's black. And, and it's kind of you know, my God, you know. Um, but uh, and it's. There's so much in this book which this stays by my bedside. Mm. It's another kind of Bible. Yeah. Because yeah. it's another it way of thinking and seeing and writing. Yeah. Derek Jarman is somebody who could do so many different things, but one of those things is clearly that he's the most extraordinary nature writer. And mm. Philip and I have um, quite a few times had a rant about this, but he, he, he isn't a nature writer like other nature writers. No. Why do we think that is, Philip? We won't name any names. <laughs> we won't name names. No, no, do you? will. <laughs> no, but what is it that's in his books it's, that isn't? It's because he, I mean, John Fowles, actually I wrote, read a, a, um, John Fowles' essay, The Tree, where it's, a, it's an extended mm. essay. It's really interesting how he talks about how the, and I think it's possibly a heterosexual impulse, to collect, to collect, to put things in boxes, give them names, oh. tidy them away, they're on the shelves, they've all got labels, it's all sorted, they've got their we're binobials. We're not talking about anyone in particular. No, we're not. They've all got their binobials, you know, tick the little boxes. Yeah. Nature is queer. Yeah. Yeah. Nature yeah. is fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Nature changes. Yeah. Yeah. Nature changes you. Yeah. If you don't let it change you, then yeah. you're completely approaching it the wrong way. Mm. And also that thing about looking at nature is like you're observing it is something different to you rather than mm. recognising your own nature. Exactly. So mm. few writers can put themselves exactly. into the observation. Uh, uh, and like all queer people are told they're unnatural. So mm. we might as well just get on with cow slips <laughs> better than... Right. And threading that, threading that sort of... The, there was one line that I really liked, which now I probably won't be able to find, but about... If this you sort can of find it, that's like you get a prize. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no pressure. pressure. <laughs> I don't know if I can find which it. It was a line about it was a line about a sort of queer paradise that was just very beautiful. Talk amongst yourselves, I'll find it in a second. But that he writes that he writes about his own well, sexuality, mm, that he writes mm, about his own illness, that he mm. that he's willing to sort of chart these 
natural states or unnatural natural states, if you like, if you're the Daily Mail, that are flowing through him all the time, that he locates himself in this landscape, not a sort of I am the noble observer, but just as another sort of element like Jet the Crow that's fiddling around stealing his clothes back. Yeah. So these the sort of well, phenomenon yeah. that are happening around It's what Ali and I were talking about walking over here because we saw ages ago, like, maybe about the time of Edward II, a film that a young man had made about... Um, Hampstead Heath and you follow all the paths through Hampstead Heath and you're following, following through all these beautiful trees and at the end you get to the centre of the film and there's Derek Jarman and I oh. think it's the most mm. beautiful film, I'd, I'll have to find out who made it, mm. but it's something about that about that sense of going, the Heath, so everyone goes home to bed, yeah. and there's suburban houses yeah. and then there's the Heath, there are all yeah. the wild feral spaces yeah. and I think that's what's exciting about Derek yeah. Jarman yeah. I just remember a little side like that I was saying, a friend of mine works at the Lux and they put on a big screening look at now about all the trees that were the um, trees mm. in Hampstead Heath that men used to meet at or st- still meet at, but someone had made a film about it. And they had a night, and lots of men came and they sat and watched it. And they turned around, they were all George Michael's friends, and they went, Oh, George would have loved this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling Derek might have loved oh, it too. Yeah, <laughs> I, loved it. I, found, I found my little line. All received information should make us invert sad, but before I finish, I intend to celebrate our corner of paradise, the part of the garden yeah. the Lord forgot to mention. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the heath. That's done. these yeah. are all these sort of resistant spaces. The LRB bookshop. The LRB bookshop. <laughs> it's like queer space. That we've got. One of my favourite nature writers is is Kathleen Jamie. Yeah. Uh, and as I think poets always write really great um, prose nonfiction. And she, in in her book Finding Sightings, rather, she she talks about cancer cells mm-hmm. as a, almost as a natural historical. Story. This is a kind of uh, this is a natural history of the HIV yeah. virus. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, uh, it absolutely uh, uh, is, uh, and, and and the progress of it. And he, yeah. you know, his and this extraordinary writing where he's so later on in the you know he's digging his garden, he's planting, he's writing about film, and then he's in hospital, and there's this incredible writing about having TB and these sweats that come on, so the sort of flooding, and he's writing about it almost like it's a spring that's washing over him. I mean, he's really trying to come to terms with what's happening, but he's also observing it in this kind of fearless way that's like, this is something that's happening to a body. It happens to be my yeah. body. That, that seems to me very much what nature writing should or could be and generally isn't for whatever strange British reasons. Well, and also there's something disclosing. So even psychoanalytic terms, you think everything goes past, present, future, all mm. at the same time. So you're always doing this movement as you read the book. You're going with Jarman through all these different experiences. So his movement starts to unleash something mm. mnemonic in us. And it's kind of extraordinary. And I think that's right. It's sort of bringing a wholeness that is extraordinarily um, disclosing in, in nature writing. Because you think people don't. They don't put themselves in or, or they put in some sort of... Or they know, put a posed wife. self in. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. So it's like it feels like he's trying all the time to get to some truth and, and to articulate something that's vital to be mm. expressed, which mm. you don't feel like there's any imperative sometimes mm. with um, mm. nature. Mm. And there should be. We will soon won't have any nature. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's nothing if not political, yeah. and yet somehow it's written about as if it isn't political. Mm. But say more about the Sabal thing, because I'm really interested. I can I, see what you mean, but... I, I just... Well, I, I think there's a lot of queer things to Sabal's writing. Yeah. There are, you know, if you look at Austerlitz's last book, there's yeah. a definite queer thing. It's strain moving through that, and I think I think it's more the question of the kind of serendipity of of Jarman's. I mean that I, I think why that book lodged in my brain was because it's it's not just it's not journals really. I mm. think almost to put journals, it's not really journals. It's something different to mm. that. It's something that's it's a reckoning. Yes, 
And it's, it's more than that as well. Yeah, though. but it works the way we all experience experience, mm. the way we experience input, you know, the way that you... I mean, if you're truly in tune with nature, you actually don't want to do anything to affect it. So you are you're passive about mm. it. Mm. You are kind of receiving. You mm. are opening. And I think Sobel does that very much. Sobel really opens it. I mean, Sobel talks about you know, his writing as being like his dog wandering around a field, you know, sniffing different things and just mm. sort of making up a composite pitch from that. And I, I think you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's the digressiveness of... I mean, that book never... It, it always leaps from one extraordinary image to the other. You are never bored. I, when I, I was meeting, I was meeting Will Atkins for having a, a cup, cup of tea next door before, and I started looking at the book, and I was, I'd already been in it. And I really, I thought, oh, I'll just look to the end again. So, and you just, it, backwards, what yeah. seest thou in the backwards abysm of time, Prospero says. And you just go backwards in it because <laughs> it's like, yeah. That's mm. what it does. He fucks with time. Yeah. But that's why he's really a great does. filmmaker. Because a filmmaker has exactly. to know that you're exactly. in time. So you, like, you can it. play it both that's ways. It, that's it. why he knows. And that's why that book... Like, a, a poet can write really great prose because they have a... Dis- a filmmaker write really great prose because they bring that different yeah. view of time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a different view of time. And isn't Auslitz, isn't it in one sentence? Or hasn't it got sections? No? I was thinking there's something about that. There's something about sort of ongoing and falling about. Oh, yeah, no, he does. Yeah, yeah. He talks about the film at the Theresienstadt yeah. uh, in, 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 in that. Yeah. And, of course, because Sebald is... Uh, Sebald's pre, pre- preeminent uh, um, uh, subject is the Holocaust. I mean, mm. that's something that haunts him. I mean, that's... Well, and it's interesting, yeah. the two sides. You think Jarman's are the winner, Sebald's the loser, and they've both got to come with those sort of moral positions, mm. and mm. they come to the world again, mm. going, to we survive that? Yeah. And bringing yeah. all of And he's yeah. so haunted by war, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's there so much... Well, that and triumphalism the bit that you is read, the thing that he despises. Mm. But the, yeah. I hadn't taken in that his father was on the... I know, yeah. ...war... So he was at the Venice War. He was at the war. Yeah, absolutely. So I hadn't quite, you know, Germans making war requiem. Mm. He's sort of he's Mm. thinking about this and kind of weighing up this inheritance. Absolutely. It's such a mark of a great artist that you can be looking at them for decades and then suddenly be like, hang on, there's this whole other thing. And what he's describing, and I don't know if he ever really understands, is that his father, who he has this very sort of um, complicated relationship Mm. with. Is traumatised in a way, yeah. and then it's uh, later mm. in life he, he finds out his father's um, stealing things, and yeah. so it's like he sort of goes, "Oh, this person who's got this facade mm. and is all very put together mm. and knows how to be a man, mm. does you know, has represents this." He he's traumatised, and there's something mm. else going yeah. on with him, and he hasn't quite had the life that he should, and so yeah. it kind of all comes together. Mm. But it's mm. amazing. <laughs> we need to think about those things now in the world, yeah. in this horrible Brixty world we live in. Do you think that's yeah. where we are now? We're still Absolutely. just sort of coming out of the trauma and Absolutely. hotting up for whatever's yeah. next. Absolutely. Yeah. But <laughs> we should turn to questions. Yeah, okay. Does anyone have any questions? No pressure. <laughs> I just wondered about Prospect House and who owns it and is all his lovely sculpture still there? Keith might say. Keith could answer that question. Yes. <laughs> he put his hand up to say yes. <laughs> Hello, I still live at Prospect Cottage and um, uh, stupidly I was in Japan once and said, if, in an audience like this, I said, if anyone's passing by, <laughs> you're more than welcome to have a cup of tea and then within the next year 200 Japanese girls turn up um, but um, I'm there for the first two weeks of June if anyone's passing by and wants a cup of tea I'll try and have milk <laughs> what, have I, what have I just Please done 
If I'm not there, then you're more than welcome to walk around. There's no fences in Dungeness. That's what attracted Derek to it, the lack of fences. And all the bits are still there. Yeah, they've ro- rusted a bit and rotted a bit because they're made of wood and steel, but most of the things are still there, and, and they're where Derek left them. Of course it is. Everyone's wandering all the time. It's, we're, we're used to it down there. There's a fantastic um, snack shack up the road as well. I was a fisherman there for seven years, and it's run by my former skipper's uh, daughter, so... Cue early for the snack shack. Um, While well, I've got the microphone, I'm not going to reprise my 2002 flop rap album now, but um, <laughs> it was a complete disaster. Um, what, what I was going to say is that um, when we had the Millennium Party, I was watching it with a, a colleague of mine, and when we had that bit with the NHS and uh, Mary Poppins was falling from the sky and bouncing on trampolines, she just burst out laughing and said, this is the goodbye party for your NHS. Just face it, your country can't afford it anymore. Yeah. And Derek had fantastic, fantastic treatment from the NHS. Incredible. It was truly amazing. And we should do everything we can. It's one of the greatest things about our country. Yeah. We should do everything yeah. we can to support it. Mm. And it gets bashed every day. Any organisation that size is going to have failings. Mm. But it is, it's where you go when things go wrong. And the people that run it are, and work in it are fantastic and deserve all the support they can get. And the other thing I want to say is, places like this, they're fantastic. You must support your local bookshop. It's uh, Derek Love Books. If anyone can guess how many are in the cottage, I'll give you the cottage with all the books in it. Um, and, and I love books too, and I can't stop buying them. I need a new bookshop made. So please support your local bookshops because Amazon's convenient and wonderful, but it's also shit. So uh, support places like this. <laughs> anyone, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> Keith, can you describe what it was like when you first met Derek? Oh. If you don't mind. Oh, Lord. Um, I was at a film festival in the Northeast and uh, Derek was screening Imagine October. And I was quite rude about it because there's a lot of text in Imagine October on the screen. And I, I didn't think that cinema was about reading, I thought cinema was about seeing. And, and image, not about word. And uh, was quite rude to Derek. Didn't really hold him in awe. I think Caravaggio just came out, and I knew him through Toya and The Tempest. Um, and the first thing I said to Derek, who's introduced him afterwards, was, oh, is Sean being gay? <laughs> and Derek said, no, I'm really sorry he's not. And that's true. <laughs> we had a, a written correspondence for about six months. The, I, I didn't give Derek my address, the director of the film festival, passed on my address to Derek and uh, I received this letter from Derek saying come and visit me, I'm editing a film and I'd like you to see how it's done, it's all done on computers and I was a bit annoyed that he'd been given my address and wrote back and said no I'm, I'm really busy, the film festival director said don't go down to London you'll end up in the black room, I was like oh my god <laughs> and another love letter from Derek and then he said don't go down to London you'll end up chained to the bed and I thought oh well, this is just not going to happen Another letter from Derek, very charming, and he said, look, don't go down to Derek to London because Derek is heavily into S&M, <laughs> which is what people who weren't into S&M called SM in those days. Um, and uh, eventually I was having an interview for a job in London and mentioned I'd visit Derek, and uh, I said, what have you been doing? And he had been making artworks for his uh, nomination for the Turner Prize with black paint. He said, I've been painting. In the Northeast, that means painting and decorating. <laughs> He said, there's black paint everywhere. And I thought, oh, shit, the black room, it's true. <laughs> and I got to the front door and just said hello. And I said, before I come in, there's something I need to know, Derek. And he said, what's that? I said, is it true you're heavily into S&M? <laughs> he said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. 
And um, that was it. We hit it off. We we were two full-grown men. We lived in a room four and a half metres by five and a half metres for, for years, for seven years nearly. And it takes a lot to do that and get on and not be at each other's throats all the time. So uh, we really hit it off. He was the most oh, astonishing person who could make reference to Shakespeare one minute and uh, Lady Di the next. And um, <laughs> there was no one, there is no one, and probably will not be anyone like him. And certainly not in my life. Yeah, I just think that's the perfect (laughs) ending. There is absolutely no one like him. There's, there's, he that he has sown these seeds that I feel like keep spring. You know, you plant seeds and you're like, oh shit, they haven't sprouted. Well, shit, what waste of time. And then they come and you're like, wow, okay, that's beautiful. That's that's what Derek's work feels to me like. It just keeps sort of blowing up in unexpected ways and providing all of these surprises. Keith, do you want to say something else? Go on, go on. No, do, do. <laughs> okay, when I was... Sorry, this is a bit sort of a scandalous story. When I was uh, coming here tonight, I flicked back through uh, Modern Nature to see what Derek was doing on this day. Ah. And uh, there's, a, there's a bit where it says, I had a dream about someone called Howard, Howard Bruckner, uh, sadly lost to uh, HIV-AIDS. And uh, the next day, we get a phone call saying Howard had died. It wasn't premonitive in any way. It was just that Howard was very much in our mind. He was very, very ill. A couple of years ago, his nephew, Aaron, decided he was going to make a movie called Uncle Howard and contacted everyone who had known him for their recollections of his life, which he was going to make into a folder as well to give to Howard's still-living uh, mum. And I said, do you want the full, unexpurgated story, or do you just want the, the glossed-over where I met him and when? And he, he said, oh, no, we want the full detail, the gory details. So I wrote the gory details. And my last encounter with Howard, he was the most astonishing man, a beautiful-looking guy as well, fit and everything. He was, he was truly wonderful. Um, he was in New York, terribly ill, had a brain infection, and I tucked him into bed and said, Howard, is there anything else you want before I go? Because I was flying back to London the next day, and uh, he told me something that he wanted. Came back to London, and uh, it turns out his brain infection got much worse overnight, and from then on, he could only barely write... And he could only speak in groans and moans, which were, it was very painful for everyone. But um, I had written down the thing that he'd said to me, which were his last words to another human being. And Howard Brookner's last words were, I'd like you to put your dick in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.